Amen. Thanks, Aaron, and praise team, people, worship leaders. Thank you for leading us. The Holy Spirit is indeed here in this place, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit is in you as well this morning. I'm excited to talk about the Holy Spirit today as we continue our series, The Unstoppable Church, uh, seeing what the book of Acts has for us. The book of Acts shows us how exciting the, the life of faith can be. I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure most of you are eating a lot more meals at home than you maybe ever have, in the, at least in the recent past. And if you're like me, we're eating a lot of leftovers at uh, my house. And uh, if you're not careful, those leftovers can kind of sit in the back of the fridge for a day or two or seven, and then they start to get a little stale and have to be thrown out. You know, I think if you're like me and you were raised in the Bible Belt, uh, in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Nashville, like I was, it's easy for Christians, for their faith to feel stale and to grow complacent, for the Christian life to become uh, unexciting and uncompelling to us. If that's you today, then the book of Acts has the remedy for you. The book of Acts shows us what a life of purpose and power looks like, a life that changes the world, a life that has an impact, a life that matters, and a life that is exciting. You may say, yeah, but you know, Acts is about Peter and Paul, and I'm not an apostle, I can't live like that, but the purpose and power that Jesus gives to his apostles, to his disciples, is the exact same purpose and power that he gives to you and me and all who would call on his name and put their trust in him. Remember Acts 1.8 we talked about last uh, week. He, he told his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Remember, that's a key word, witnesses, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Power and purpose. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and your purpose will be to proclaim the goodness and greatness of God to all the world. It's a beautiful purpose and power that we have. Our lives now, because of this purpose and power, have a, a, a significant purpose in this world, to come alongside of what God's doing in order to play our part in his redemptive purposes for all of creation. Doesn't that sound exciting, that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and be able to play a part in moving this world more like heaven and less like hell? I hope that's compelling to you today. One of our small group leaders wrote uh, in an email to his class, they're studying, our small groups are studying uh, the same scripture that we're uh, looking at on Sunday mornings. And he said, uh, Acts gives us the key to living a powerful, fruitful Christian life. Every day may be a personal history of quiet but supernatural miracles in our lives in answer to our prayers. I pray that we will be blessed together as we learn and know the power of the Holy Spirit in present day living. Isn't that beautiful? I thought that, that captured so nicely that we can have little miracles along the path of our everyday lives when we walk by faith in the Spirit. Seeing God move all around us to do things that only he can do. That is not a stale or useless life, is it? 
that life matters and it has purpose and power in it as well. And where does that power come from? Where is the, the unstoppable fo- uh, force that becomes the church? Where does it get that power? From right here in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read this exciting text today. Remember that Jesus said last week that he told his disciples, stay put, be patient, and wait in Jerusalem. Don't go back home to Galilee yet. Just stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. The Spirit was going to be unleashed on the world in a whole new kind of way that would really define this whole church era that we're in still today. You know, there's, there's been a, a few absolutely life-changing moments in our world, hasn't there? Uh, you think about World War I or, or World War II. Uh, you think about, even in our own lifetimes, about how 9-11 uh, really transformed the world. And some experts say that right now we're in another one of those global life-changing moments with this pandemic that we've experienced. How will that shape our world? I don't know, but I would argue that other than the incarnation of Christ and his death and resurrection, there's been no other event in history that has changed our world so much as what we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit into our world. It's a big deal. You know, Christmas is a big deal. Uh, We celebrate Christmas because it's an amazing thing. God came here. God put on flesh and became incarnate in our world. That's an amazing thing. But in Acts chapter 2, something like that happens again. God shows up in our world, and this time he's not confined to a human body. This time he's God the Spirit flowing through all of the believers in this world now. That's an amazing thing. We, We call this Pentecost Sunday And really, Pentecost Sunday is supposed to come seven weeks after Easter, but we're going to celebrate a little bit early. It's supposed to be the end of May, but we're going to have Pentecost Sunday right here today. I invite you to stand wherever you are in honor of God's word, if you can stand, uh, as we read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 together. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat wherever you are. Pentecost Sunday, it's a big deal, isn't it? We know that Pentecost is really the, I, I don't, the, the turning point in this whole 
story of the New Testament in the Bible. You know that Pentecost means 50th in Greek, and it's really just the name that was given by the the Greek-speaking Jews to this festival of weeks called Shavuot in Hebrew. It's a harvest festival, and the Shavuot festival was marked by the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem were supposed to bring uh, some of the first fruit of their wheat harvest, meaning bring some flour from home. And as a thanks offering to God, they would take some of that first wheat harvest, that flour, and they would bake two loaves, uh, and they would offer those two loaves at the temple as an offering to God in gratitude for the harvest that he provided. And little did they know at this time that a harvest unlike any other was about to happen, that the first fruits of the church were about to be gathered in. In chapter one, we saw how the uh, 11 disciples who are left and the faithful women who are left are gathered in an upper room with about 120, it says, total believers, people who followed Christ. We don't know if it's the same upper room where they celebrated Passover on Maundy Thursday, but they're in this room, and it seems like they're still gathered there uh, about a week after Jesus uh, has ascended into heaven, and now it's time to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. And I wonder if the believers knew that something was about to happen. It was an exciting time in in the city. Pilgrims from all over, uh, all over the entire world had come to Jerusalem for the Harvest Festival. It was in June, we we think, and that was a good time to travel. It was a very crowded time and exciting. And look what happens in verse 2. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I've never been in a tornado, and I pray I never am, but you always hear stories about people who were in a tornado, and how do they always describe it? They always say it sounded like a freight train was bearing down on top of them. That's kind of what I'm reminded of here as you read this text. You know, for these disciples in this group of 120, it had been an incredibly, what I imagine, boring time. They were told by Jesus to shelter in place, to stay. I don't know if you are uh, an enthusiastic extrovert like myself, but that's hard for us to wait where we are and be patient. You know, they had been praying, yes, they had been unified and praying in in, in Jesus' name together, but they had been there for about a week in that room with nothing going on, and all of a sudden a tornado fills the room. The word for mighty here is usually translated as violent. It's a forceful wind. It has power to it. Their robes are flapping and plates and food go flying as this rushing wind comes in with force. Why did the Spirit show up in this way? Why is the Spirit coming as wind here? Because that's what the Scriptures tell us. The Spirit is like wind and breath. The Hebrew word ruach in the Old Testament means spirit or wind or breath. And the same thing's true with the New Testament. The Greek word pneuma, it's where we get our word for lungs, pneumatic, pneumonia, those kind of air things. Because pneuma means spirit, but it's also translated as wind or air. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in verse 8, He said, the wind blows, the pneuma blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. 
the Spirit. When we are born of the Spirit, he's telling Nicodemus that we have this force in us that we can't see, but we know it's there. And I wonder if Jesus was alluding to Ezekiel chapter 37 when he said this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a, a Jewish ruler. Surely he knew Ezekiel 37, one of my favorite stories, the story of the valley of dry bones. God tells his prophet Ezekiel to go to this valley and to prophesy to the, the dead scattered bones that are all around and tell them how God is going to make them live again. And as he's prophesying, something amazing happens. The skeletons began to grow muscles and, and tissues and tendons and organs and finally skin, but they're still dead. They're not alive yet. And then God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the wind, to the ruach, and to call on it to blow on the dead bodies. And look what uh, God tells Ezekiel. Come from the four winds, O ruach, and ruach on these slain. Breathe. Breathe three times that word, wind and breath, that they may live. So I prophesied as the Lord commanded me, and the breath, the ruach, came into them. Reminds us of Genesis 1, where God breathed into Adam and Eve. Keep going, Will. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. They lived, they stood, an exceedingly great army. That's the picture of the church that we get in Acts. The Spirit rushes in and fills people who were without hope, people who were scared, people who were spiritually dead. And he gives them new life to where they become an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. It's an exciting, exciting story. And not only wind showed up on that day at Pentecost, but also fire, another uh, symbol of God's presence with his people. Look at verse three. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, in the past, God had led Israel as a pillar of fire by night. On Mount Sinai, when Moses received the law, there was a, a consuming fire that sat on the mountain. But here at Pentecost, the fire divides into flames that rest on the individual heads of the believers. It seems like there's an emphasis now on a personal relationship with God in the, the church age, the new covenant age. The fire of the Holy Spirit is not just out front as a unified whole that's leading us as God's people, but now that spirit is given to us as individuals, uniting us in one hope, one faith, one baptism, one spirit that dwells inside of us. It compels us forward as a whole on God's mission. So what happened then with these newly empowered Christ followers? Well, they can't contain themselves. They, they begin to speak in tongues. We know that speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit because we see how Paul tells the church in Corinth about uh, this, this gift, glossolalia in Greek, it's, it's where a person is so filled with the Spirit that they're able to speak in a language that they normally would not have known. And here at Pentecost, the believers are speaking in languages that they definitely did not grow up speaking. And, and these languages are immediately recognized by the crowds uh, gathering around them. Apparently, they couldn't contain what had happened with the Holy Spirit in that upper room, and they're, they're spilling out onto the streets 
and they're, they're going towards the temple. Maybe they were going to worship, but we know that Peter's going to stand up here in, in the next sermon next week and give a, a sermon on the temple grounds. And so they, they're out in the, the, the streets speaking in tongues, and the, the point for us is that what happened to them isn't just for them. They don't sit and just dwell with the Spirit in the upper room. They go out. They're outward focused. The Spirit was given to them to empower their witness to the world. The Spirit doesn't fill us so we can keep it to ourselves. So then, how do the crowds react to these newly Spirit-filled believers speaking in tongues that are not their own? Look at verse 5. Now that they were, that they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and so on? I, I heard on a, a Zoom call this morning, one of our small groups, someone uh, reading these names, and they just did beautifully. They read them so perfectly. So good job, Jana. We all hear them, verse 11 says, we all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The witness was spreading quickly about what God was doing and had done. The crowds began to gather around these Jesus followers, amazed at what they're seeing and hearing. How is it possible that this, this scrawny, scrappy group of uneducated uh, Jews from Galilee, fishermen, how is it that these guys who couldn't even speak proper Hebrew, let alone Latin or Egyptian, are, are speaking now in these perfect dialects? Some of them are speaking in polished Greek from different regions of the Greek empire with the perfect regional accent from that place. And people who had never been outside of Israel in their entire lives were speaking in these very cosmopolitan global languages like Egypt, Egyptian. Verse 11 says that the crowds were hearing these disciples and what were they saying? They were telling the mighty works of God. They were witnessing to God's might and goodness. And what was the result? Look at verse 12 again. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? That's a good question. What does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Some were genuinely amazed and, and perplexed, and they asked that good question, what does this mean? They're genuinely seeking the truth. They're at a loss for words. They don't know what to make of this, and they're looking for an answer. But then you got the cynics on the other side. Ah, they've had one too many. You know, I, I confess, I wrestle with cynicism. I've said it before that I can easily dismiss or deride something, even make fun of it, mock things. In my fallen, sinful nature, I'm prone to cynicism. It's so easy for me to, to say that's not important, that doesn't matter, and dismiss something. The world today still looks on people who are filled with the Spirit in, in one of these two ways. You know, some people will be honest enough to seek the truth about what they see in us, but then the cynics still exist. They dismiss us as crazy people, as stupid or whatever. The question for us is this, are we filled with the Spirit to the point where people ask the questions? Do people notice something different about us to where they're forced to choose 
Do we seek an answer or do we mock and deride? What does it look like for us to live spirit-filled lives? Are, are we just like everybody else in the world? We just happen to go to church sometimes. We happen to maybe give some money to the church. We maybe teach a small group or whatever. But what is different about people who are filled with the Holy Spirit? What does that look like? There's a beautiful picture in Ephesians chapter 5 in verses 18 to 21. Just look at these verses with me. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We see in these, uh, just these few verses, four marks of what a spirit-filled life looks like. What are the four identifying factors that we see here about what it means to live a spirit-filled life? Well, first off, there's deep communication. Clearly, the, these people who are filled with the spirit begin addressing one another, it says in verse 18, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, at Pentecost, the believers experienced this unbelievable intimacy that they'd never have had before with one another as they worship together, as they proclaim the greatness of God together and become united in the core of their beings. There's something really special about having the Holy Spirit in you that makes you want to have this level of deep communication because you share the same secret. You, you know the same uh, depth of communication because you have the same Lord and Savior living inside of you. I can tell you this plays out in my own life, for sure in my relationship with my wife. When my wife and I are, are filled with the Spirit, our communication is deep and it's authentic and it's, 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 it's meaningful and fulfilling. But when we're dry, when I'm dry spiritually, our communication isn't there. I've seen this play out on retreats too. And, and if you've ever been on a mission trip or something, at first it's awkward, people don't know each other. I remember we went on a men's retreat a couple years ago here at Woodmont. And at first we're kind of like, what are we doing here? But as we worship together, as we studied God's word together, we began to become more and more filled with the Holy Spirit. And we began to bond and, and talk more and more. And, and the level of communication for a group of guys, which were not really great communicators to begin with, became so deep, again, and authentic and, and meaningful. The second mark of the spirit-filled life is joy. You know, I, I don't understand Christians, people who claim to be Christians who aren't joyful. If anyone has a reason to be joyful, it's us. Even in the midst of a pandemic, we have a reason to be joyful. I know people that struggle with depression and, and, and mental illness, and I want to be sensitive to that. I understand that, but as a Christian, we are called to rejoice always. What are the believers saying as they speak in tongues? They're describing how great God is. They're talking about how awesome he is and how great the things that he has done. They're marveling and they're praising him for how amazing he is. Ephesians 5.19 says that the spirit-filled people are making music in their hearts. It's welling up inside of them. They can't help it. It overflows in praise. I love the story of Billy Bray. I've, I've read about him a couple times. He was a poor, uh, illiterate coal miner. 
in Wales, and he was saved in the Welsh revival of 1904. And he once stood up in the midst of a sad church meeting with a bunch of sad sack Christians like you probably have seen before. And people were complaining about their hardships in life. And he stood up and he said, well, friends, I've been taking vinegar and honey, but praise the Lord, I've had the vinegar with a spoon and the honey with a ladle. The Lord has made me glad and no one can make me sad. He makes me shout and no one can make me doubt. He it is that makes me dance and leap and there is no one that can keep down my feet. Oh, to have that kind of contagious joy. I know, I mean, like you, I'm prone to complain and I'm prone to, to grumble and gripe, but let's show the world that we are filled with the spirit and that we cannot contain the inner joy that is constantly welling up in us because we know how great our God is and we have God's own almighty presence within us. The third trait of a spirit-filled person is constant gratitude. Ephesians 5 verse 20 says, giving thanks always and for everything. How can we do that? Again, our, our sinful nature is to be selfish and to complain, to, to gripe about our lot in life, to wallow in our own self-pity. It takes a supernatural act of the spirit to engender this kind of constant gratitude in the face of hardships, in the face of a global pandemic, we can still give thanks to God for he is good and he has done great things. Finally, the fourth trait of a spirit-filled person is submission, putting others first. Look at verse 21 again. It says that they were submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How different is that from the apostles that we see in the gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we see these guys constantly jockeying for position as guys can tend to do, right? They're competing with one another about who's gonna sit in the place of honor when they sit down for a meal with Jesus. They're, they're jockeying for position in the kingdom. Who's gonna be the greatest when Jesus restores the kingdom? They're always scrambling for position and rank. Why did Jesus wash their feet on Monday, Thursday? Because they didn't know how to love one another in service and with selflessness. They refused to serve one another and to have a servant heart. And now with the Holy Spirit here in Acts 2, they're, they're celebrating. We know that we read about the history of the early church. They had these love feasts, these communion uh, elements time where they celebrated the Lord's Supper together and they would always let the poor and the hungry go first. The widows, the orphans, they would let them go first while they became servant-hearted leaders. What a transition, what an amazing transformation from the Gospels to Acts. And what's the difference? It's the Holy Spirit in them. They are continuing to work in this way that it makes them yield to one another and put others first. And now the Spirit does the same thing in our lives, giving us a communicative spirit, giving us a joyful spirit, giving us a grateful spirit, and giving us a servant-hearted, yielding, submissive spirit as well. Only the Spirit could do that, I can promise you. So maybe today you need a fresh wind and a fresh fire in your life. Maybe you're just so full of anxiety. Maybe you're so full of, of sadness. Maybe you're so full of fear. Maybe you're so full of lust or greed or jealousy. 
that there's no room for the Spirit to come and fill you up. Maybe you're so full of all these other things that today you have no space left in your life for the Holy Spirit. The call today is to empty yourself of all but Christ and his Spirit. We receive the Spirit by coming to God with nothing of our own, with no righteousness that we have earned, and we, all we bring is the righteousness of Christ, which is, of course, in fact, everything. And then as we learn to live in the Spirit, we acknowledge our inability to function, to navigate life on our own. We acknowledge our own inability to be right on our own. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. And each time we surrender and submit to the Spirit's lead in our life, he fills us more and more with his own presence so that we can carry on his work in the world around us. He will not fill the sails of our lives with the wind of the Holy Spirit until we admit that our sails are empty apart from him. We spend so much time spinning our wheels trying to fill the wind of, uh, and the sails of our life, and it's to no avail without the Holy Spirit blowing in the right direction. You know, the apostles in the upper room were living in this utter emptiness and utter dependency waiting for the Holy Spirit, not knowing what was going to happen. They didn't have a plan. They didn't have an education. All they knew is Jesus had commanded them to wait and be empty and wait to be filled. And they were. Fresh wind and fresh fire rushed into their lives. So would you come to Christ today in humility, in confession, emptying yourself of all but him? laying down the burdens that you carry, laying down the sins that are filling your life now. The key to the spirit-filled Christian life is found in this strange paradox, right? That cultivating an attitude of perpetual emptiness is the only way to bring a perpetual fullness. As we learn to live more and more empty, perpetually empty ourselves, then we learn how to be perpetually filled by the only thing that can really fill us and sustain us, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it this way, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's a promise, and you can believe it because Jesus said it. Will you empty yourself today of all but him and allow his Holy Spirit to come and fill you in a whole new kind of way? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word tells us that we can have the same kind of Holy Spirit power that the apostles in the New Testament church had. God, we are so full of other things besides your spirit, God. I know that uh, we all struggle with anger and with jealousy, that we have sin and, and greed that live uh, inside of us. God, we ask you to come and fill us today, that we would empty ourselves even our own pride, all of our achievements that we've accomplished in this life are just like a pile of worthless rags in front of your righteousness and your goodness, oh God. We pray that you would make us spirit-filled people because if we're not, God, we have no power. We have no ability to be the church that you desire us to be an unstoppable force for your kingdom in this world. God, I pray that you would allow us to empty ourselves today 
of all but you. We acknowledge, oh God, that we bring nothing to the table, that we need you 100% more and more every minute of every day. God, we pray that you would fall fresh on us, oh God. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. We're gonna sing a, a song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Fresh on Me. And I invite you, wherever you are, if you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ today, don't wait another minute. Call the, the church office, 615-297-5303. Talk to someone. Say, I want to give my life to Christ. We can walk you through it. Send us a Facebook message or a connection uh, on our website. Whatever it may be, don't delay in giving your life to the one who can actually make something good of it and beautiful. That's what God does all the time. He takes our rags and he gives us a righteous crown. If you need to do that today, don't delay. If you're ready to, to join a church and you say, I want to join Woodmine. I've been watching you guys on TV and now I'm ready to join. Come talk to us about that. Just send us an email. Don't come physically, but send us an email. Call the church and say, I want to join Woodmont and be a part of what God's doing there. We'd love to see you uh, as part of our church family, even virtually. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, I pray that you would sing this song with conviction in your heart. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me and receive the Holy Spirit into your life in a whole new kind of way today. Maybe you've just grown stale in your faith and you're ready to say, I need a fresh wind, oh God. Today is the day. Let's sing this from our hearts.